The cancer journey is unique for everyone. It's time to figure out our new normal, and there's no one-size-fits-all manual. Welcome to Unspoken Cancer Truths with Jen Cochran, because surviving is just the beginning. Welcome to episode 53 of Unspoken Cancer Truths. I'm your host, Jen Cochran. I'm a realist. I'm really not sure if cancer will ever be completely eradicated. At its most basic cause, it's a mistake made by one cell that starts to replicate faster than it dies off. We live in a highly industrialized world where we're exposed to toxins, have genetic leanings, and in many cases lead overly busy, stressful lives, all of which can affect our health. What I do wish for everyone is that we have the best options for screenings, any pre-cancer or cancer is found early and easily taken care of. I often hear from people who experience early-stage cancers, things like, I just had fill-in-the-blank of treatment. I didn't need fill-in-the-name-of-what-feels-like-a-more-challenging treatment. My situation wasn't as bad as what others go through. Therefore, I'm not sure my story is important which I always respond, that that is what I want for everyone. And it does not diminish the fact that now you've joined this Cancer Survivorship Club. And unfortunately, that membership card comes with a lot of unspoken challenges that no one prepared us for. When I first met my guest this week, she said, you know, I didn't have cancer. I just had a couple of surgeries. Paula's journey started with a family history of breast cancer that included her mother, maternal grandmother, and maternal great-grandmother. Her doctor told her at 25 it wasn't if, but when, she would be diagnosed. In 2015, she tested positive for the BRCA2 gene mutation, leaving her some tough choices to make, including undergoing a partial hysterectomy and prophylactic bilateral mastectomy, all by the age of 37. Paula Shepard lives outside of Austin, Texas, with her husband, four children, and a small zoo. I can completely relate to the zoo. I'm really looking forward to our chat today. Welcome, Paula. I'm really excited to have you here today. The topic of being BRCA positive is definitely one of those topics that, as I meet new people, who are in this category, there's very much split, um, even within families, among sisters. So often I meet sisters and one has made choices to be super, super proactive and take actions early on. And the other is like, I'm doing my screenings every six months. And and it's interest, always interesting to me to see the differences and just how individual we all are and how we all approach this from a different perspective and gives us a new opportunity to appreciate all the different perspectives that there are. So I'm super, super happy to have you share your experience and your journey from this from this perspective. So welcome. Thank you. I'm really excited to be here and to be able to share with you and your audience. Yes. 
So we're going to just jump right in and talk about your experience, how you came to kind of your family history, how you came to discover that you had the BRCA gene. All right. So I'm going to take it way back. <laughs> my my grandmother, my mother, my great-grandmother all had breast cancer and um, all were survivors. Um, my grandmother has since passed and obviously my, my great-grandmother. Um, and I remember going into the gynecologist at one point in time. And, and I was in my late twenties and I had talked to her a little bit about my history. And I said, well, I just am a little concerned about if I should ever get breast cancer. And her comment to me was, and it really floored me at the time being as young as I was, was it's not if you're going to get it, it's when. And I remember going home and thinking, well, when are we going to start doing mammograms? I need to start thinking about this now and really feeling that doom and gloom about what was going to happen to me and not really being prepared for it. Because I, had, I hadn't watched my grandmother and my great-grandmother go through that, but I did watch my mother go through it. And she was in her 40s you know, when that happened. And it seemed as though the timeline was just getting younger and younger from person to person in our family. And so I did start getting mammograms pretty, pretty early. And I, I went in for an appointment with, at the time I, I had anemia. And so the doctor that I was working with um, was also an oncologist and recommended based on my family history that I have this test done. And my mom agreed to have the test done on her and she provided me with the results. I had the test done and I, I don't think I really understood what it meant when I went in to talk to the person about the report because it took a little while. It took a while for it to come back. And I remember sitting in the office and hearing her tell me, okay, here's what you had and here's the recommendations. Um, but of course you want to speak with your doctor. So I was, here I was, I, I, I walked out to the car. I was upset. It was, I was losing my, I was basically being told that the option for me was to lose my ovaries and my tubes. And I was 35. I was 35 years old. And I, I was told I didn't need to make the decision right then and there, but that they really wanted me to move forward with anything. They wanted my ovaries and my tubes removed. They really wanted that partial hysterectomy. And that really hit me hard because I had had a lot of issues with infertility. And my husband and I had been trying to get pregnant. We'd gone through IVF. We'd gone through everything and, um, and had a lot of miscarriages. And so to be basically be told, you, this, you know, this isn't meant to be for you anymore. And you need to have this done was stripping that away. So I waited. Um, I waited a little while. And uh, I actually wound up making an appointment to have that surgery done. And that was that spring. And something happened. And I, I don't even remember at the time, but I, I canceled the appointment for whatever reason. And I found out a month and a half later that I was pregnant with my son. <laughs> and yeah, 
So, so that happened. And so I had my son and then I decided right afterwards. So here I had my son and I'm, you know, 36 years old and two and a half months later, I had my ovaries and my tubes removed. So I had this C-section and two and a half months later, I have my ovaries and my tubes removed. And then what happens? Immediate menopause, right? So just tanks my mental health, um, which I didn't want to admit at the time, right? Because I could control it. I was strong. And this this diagnosis wasn't going to get me. I was, I was honestly felt like I was in a good empowered place where I was able to make a decision before the decision was being made for me. And especially I had had many infusions for my anemia before. And I had to sit amongst other patients that were cancer patients. And I almost felt like I didn't deserve to be there because here I was walking in seemingly healthy, having these ferritin infusions while there were people that were really not doing well. And they were getting chemo treatments in the same place that I was in. So I felt a lot of shame around that, that I didn't really deserve to be there. So I, I waited a little while after I had that surgery and it was probably because you have to coordinate everything. I, I finally made the decision. Okay. I did the hard part. I did the hard part, had the ovaries and the tubes removed. I might as well start exploring what this would look like to have this bilateral mastectomy, right? This prophylactic mastectomy. And I, I talked to a couple doctors, really trusted them. And we organized it. And I didn't tell anybody. <laughs> I didn't tell anyone. I barely told anyone because I didn't want anyone to feel bad for me. I didn't want anybody to feel sorry for me. And I didn't want to glamorize what was being done because it it just felt not okay. Almost as though I was doing a grave disservice to people that were actually struggling with the disease versus someone who had the knowledge to prevent being in the situation they were in. So I didn't tell anyone. And the most profound part, here I am, I'm 37 years old. It was September and and I had just turned 37. And I worked in a corporate office and I did tell a few people, but I did not take any leave of absence. I had my surgery done on a Friday, I believe. And I was back to work a week from the following Monday. So I basically took a week off of work and I hadn't even had my drains removed for that many days before I went back to the office. And I, I didn't tell people. I just didn't. I, I told a few people at work and I made them swear that they wouldn't tell anybody else. And there were a few people that were man my managers that knew, but it was interesting how nothing really came up about it. You know, nobody really asked me uh, from a management perspective if I was okay enough to be at work or to really kind of force their hand and say like, "You have to stay home. You need this." And Looking back, I realized what a stupid move that was. I should have taken some time off, but I think I was, I didn't want to look at the reality of the situation. And part of that is, you know, one of the most profound moments for me was I was told I could stay overnight, but I didn't have to because I had my surgery 
where it was back to back. So I had the surgery done and then the reconstruction immediately after. And they wanted me to stay overnight. I have four children. So they wanted me to have some rest and I didn't want that. So after the surgery, I, I begged them to let me go home. They said, okay. I came home. Meanwhile, you know, I have this two-year-old child <laughs> and uh, who doesn't want, who wants mommy, right? So that was heartbreaking for me as well. Not being able to hug my child, right? Not being able to hug my child. Um, but then feeling, you know, the minute I would feel sorry for myself, I would remember that I was the lucky one because I got to make the choice. And so I wouldn't let myself get to that place. And I didn't actually even look at myself for a couple of days. And I called my mom in. She was staying with me. And I opened my robe and looked while she was there. And I just remember breaking down because I felt like I, I looked like a monster. I mean, you've got the tubes in. They're making all kinds of strange patterns underneath of your skin. You know, you don't have any tissue anymore. Like it doesn't look normal. So I think for other people, for some people, it felt like it would be glamorous. Like, oh, but then you're you're gonna get implants and it's gonna look amazing. And you get, you know, you get a new set. But the reality of the situation is like they're lumpy and bumpy, like they're cold all the time, right? And it just isn't normal. Yeah, so you know really weird. So bizarre, right? Like it's like it's the most bizarre thing ever. They need little hats. Um, but, but the it, most interesting part about this is that my mother was with me. She had just found out she'd had cancer um, 20 years before, and she was getting regularly checked. And right before a visit here, she split she splits her time between my home and my sister's home, pre COVID, of course, and she found out that she had her cancer had returned and it was a small spot, but I already had doctors in place here, which had I not gone and had this done and had people that I trusted, she would have had to go find them. Even living in Maryland, she would have had to find those people because those were, they were all different doctors than when she had cancer 20 years before. So now she had all these doctors that she trusted and we were able to make some really swift moves. So my mom now has had a mastectomy. She originally had a lumpectomy back then. They didn't, they just did the lumpectomy. They didn't, they didn't want to deal with the mastectomy if they didn't have to. And so now she had that, she had a reconstruction done and with doctors that she trusted and now is a two-time breast cancer survivor. So I think that was a long-winded version of my story, but probably as not short as all. I could make it. <laughs> not at all. Not at all. So there's so many, so many kind of threads that run through your story that I hear so commonly. And one of them, and I think this is the thing that other people find to be so surprising, like communicating with people that we are having these challenges like it is so fraught with challenges that often people just don't communicate like they if you can you just don't talk about it like for me I had to tell people because I had 
I had a business, I saw clients, and I did what you did, I took a week off. And 11 days, I was off. And I actually still look back on that. And I'm like, I wouldn't I would not have done it differently. I really would not have done it differently. But again, we all have different sort of different flashpoints in our story. There's different things for different people. Some people go through part of a process and it's like, eh, I did the thing. And for other people, that same thing is more challenging. And then they go through a different part of the process that was challenging for someone else. And they're like, eh, I did the thing. Mm-hmm. And it's just very interesting because it is so, just like the treatments, it's so individual. And so individual how we move through those things. But very interesting how you said about glamorizing it. I shared with you off air that I said to my surgeon that I was taking him off and getting an upgrade. And I've seen the meme, a bilateral mastectomy is not a boob job. Mm -hmm. And it's absolutely not. (laughs) Totally not. It's a serious procedure. Like it is surgery there, as you put it, there are things hanging off of us when you come out of that surgery. Like it's just a weird thing to navigate. And for me, I was like, yeah, I got what I said that I wanted. No, no one wants cancer. But I walked into that surgeon's office and said, "Eh, I'm going to get an upgrade. I mm-hmm. essentially got an upgrade, like in close, it's an upgrade. So in the land of it's not a glamorous surgery, in the communication of telling people, if I said the word cancer, I got a really difficult response. And I found I was propping people up and making them feel better. So I started telling people I was getting an upgrade that was medically necessary. And then people would think I was getting a boob job. And then they would connect the dots. But I short-circuited their fear, their grief, their sadness, anything they'd ever felt about cancer was completely short-circuited by the manner in which I communicated (laughs) And I think sometimes we do that. I know I did personally because I didn't want to have to deal with their emotions. Like I had too much on my plate and it was just easier to kind of joke about it or play it off or make myself feel like, oh, well, and I do still feel this way, but I, but I, I not this nonchalant, but that I got the opportunity to make the choice before it was made for me. I do genuinely, I am so grateful for that, right? I didn't have the same experience that you did. Um, and and so for me, that feels just really, really honorable. But at the same time, the reason why I didn't share with anybody was because I didn't want people to say, oh, I'm so sorry, or have to explain the story 80,000 times. Nobody wanted to do that. I did not have it in me. And so it is easier to just not talk about it. And it's so interesting because people will say, oh, people don't do that. Yes. Yes, they do. 
<laughs> Everyone totally. who's had to share a cancer diagnosis or something related to cancer will say that they have a very similar experience because it isn't about us. It's about whatever they, the person we're telling has experienced in relation to that word. And until you experience it, like, it's a completely foreign concept. It, that piece has been so interesting. My mom had said to me one day, oh, people don't do that. I was like, yes, yes, they do. And she had a DCIS and she was like, oh, my gosh, people do that. <laughs> Why is they everyone do. so upset? I just needed to say that I was having this small surgery. I'm just having a lumpectomy. I'm going to be fine. Why? Why are people calling me so upset? And I was like, it's just how it is. This too shall pass. They become, a, you. I mean, you become a walking trigger for other people. You're right. Sure. Based on their own personal perspectives. What have they gone through? Who have they lost? whether it was to breast cancer or some other kind of cancer, you know, what do they have going on in their lives right now? What kind of a person are they? Do they like to take care of people? Are they a natural worrier, right? Like, and so here we are so focused on other people and not ourselves. But I think that in and of itself is a protection mechanism when you're going through this type of an experience. And I can imagine even more so, right? When the diagnosis of cancer comes and you have to then also have this very traumatic surgery, right? Because you've now navigated not just this diagnosis and the chemo and all the things that go along with it, but also having to have this very traumatic thing done to your body. When some some people just think, oh, I remember my mom saying, they can just take them off. Like, I don't even care. <laughs> and I'm like, are you, do you really think that right now? And she's like, I just, I just don't even know if I have it in me right? Because you just get so, I can imagine, right? Just watching from my mom's perspective, getting so beaten down. And even though her... I've had this. Sorry. Was That's that, okay. Was that after her, with her second diagnosis that she felt that way? Yes. Yes. With her second diagnosis. Because I think we were all very worried um, about what was going to happen. And and the reason being, you know, my father had had uh, prostate cancer and it came back years later and um, and went throughout his bones, right? And so ultimately, he succumbed to a variety of things, but ultimately because of the presentation of the cancer when it came back. And I think then because of that experience, we were all very on edge when hers came back the second time, even though they were saying, oh, it's not a big deal. And she was getting herself checked. There was still that that part of us that was very, very nervous. You know, my mom's not an old woman, right? She's 65 years old now. So she's now had cancer twice yeah. at six by 65. Yeah. And perspective and experience makes such a difference in how we view things too, because even it's an unconsciousness. It's the piece that we're not aware of like having lost a parent to a recurrent cancer, a recurrent cancer in, for the other parent is going to be traumatic, even if we're not fully present to the why of that trauma. Exactly. Eventually we get there. It's interesting. I think um, 
I wonder if your mom was was similar to me and that I had worked with a lot of breast cancer patients and I knew what all the procedures looked like. That wasn't new information. And therefore, for me, it was kind of an easy decision. I was like, I'm 43. I we don't have any idea. Like for me, I didn't have family history. I didn't have the gene. I was like, we don't know why this is happening. So let's just nip this in the butt. <laughs> yeah. Let's do whatever we need to do. And because I it wasn't it wasn't on a steep learning curve. I think it was a little bit easier. And I wonder if it was similar for your mom where she was like, hey, I'm at this place where I'm good with going in that direction. Yeah, she. I think she was. She was like, what do we need to do to make this potentially never happen again? Like, I never would hear about this ever again. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's easier to come to, come to that place when you've kind of been there before. Right. So... I have so many other topics to talk about. We're going to take a quick break. And when we get back, um, Paula and I will continue our chat. Stay with us. I hope you're enjoying Unspoken Cancer Truths. I help people to get moving again. And sometimes you just need to switch up the approach or find a new challenge, especially when thinking about starting back after treatment or an illness. One of my goals is to help you flip the idea of exercise as something that's hard, awful, or daunting, and make it something fun, maybe even a little social. Safely, of course. The important thing is that you want to get started, and you're happy to show up for yourself, and then you want to stay in the game because it feels good to move, and you had fun doing it. Ready to reimagine exercise? You can email me at jennifer at fitnessdesignsolutions.com or schedule a copy chat with me through the Facebook group, Surviving is Just the Beginning. Now back to the show. We are back. I'm here with Paula Shepard, and we are talking about her experience with the BRCA2 gene and all of the things that go along with that. We were talking about during the break, how many similarities we were finding in our stories. And one of the things we were talking about was sleeping, like all the things no one tells you about when you go through this journey. Like no one really tells you, prepares you for how you're going to sleep after surgery when you have like Strains hanging off of you. And I had a pain pump like that was wires that were kind of laid in that was there for three days, which was amazing because, I mean, I took Tylenol and I was good. I didn't need anything beyond that. But it was one more thing that I was carrying around that was hanging around my neck. Oh, my gosh. Those strains. Sleeping procedure it becomes a procedure right mm-hmm. well you have to be careful because you don't want to rip things out of your body I mean right. I was terrified that's what I thought I I had never had anything like that before I had had major surgeries before but I'd never had a drain 
And luckily I had only two drains, um, but I popped a stitch on one, you know, and then you get the, you know, then it's bleeding and then I'm worried and I'm already emotional. And so there's all these things kind of going on, but you're right. There's no real way to be comfortable in your clothes and you're rubbing with your arms on your sides. And it's, if you've never experienced that before, it's terrible. It's terrible. It's so uncomfortable. It's, you know, you think rest and heal. It's very hard to rest and relax while you're healing in that way. Yes. I was so grateful for, we met with an oncology nurse the night before my procedure, which was totally not normal. My surgery got moved hospitals and we missed the group meeting. So we met with the nurse the night before. And the thank goodness we did because she was the only person that said, and by the way, when they do your lymph node dissection, that is going to be the most painful part of the whole process. And it was completely true. And in your case, you probably didn't have to have lymph nodes taken out. So when you have a, a cancer diagnosis, they will sample the sentinel node, which is they inject dye and it travels from the spot of the tumor to the first lymph node and they take that lymph node out and they test it. And then if you're clear, then they don't have to do anything else. And if you're not, they take more lymph nodes. And it's like a little incision under your armpit. And I had a bilateral. It all the breast tissue removed. That little spot under my armpit was the worst. And if she hadn't oh, prepared me, it probably would have terrified me. Mm-hmm. I probably would have thought something oh. was wrong. Although some people don't want to know. But I know my mother had the same thing done with hers and um, and had that extra drain as well. She had many more drains than I did when she had her second her surgery and had her bilateral But yeah, and then, I mean, not to mention the fact that when you're talking about lymph nodes, and I know that takes us down a whole other path, but what that does for the whole rest of your medical history and not being able to be pricked on that side. And so all the things that go along with it that people don't think about, because it's not just the removal of the lymph node, it's like the function of the lymph node (laughs) and that it's no longer there to function in that manner. So what does that do for you? And what discomfort can that create in terms of, swelling and no drainage and all of those things. So yeah, it's, it's not just, oh, we took care of that thing or, you know, we, we got rid of the cancer or, you know, we've taken the breasts away and it's not that way. There's so many other little micro things that aren't discussed. So yeah, like I'm glad you mentioned that lymph node and, um, and also, you know, strains, man, those strains are they're terrible. They are. My husband, bless him. The <laughs> first couple of days, I couldn't really do my drains myself. So he was doing them. And last February, I had had some uh, chronic pain on my right side, which is not my affected side. And because I had a skin sparing and I had a lot of scar tissue under the nipple complex. 
And that side had had a lot of swelling in the healing process. So we actually ended up deciding last February to take the right, I had already had the left nipple removed. So I had the right nipple removed, which fixed the majority of the chronic pain that I had. Because it was the scar tissue interfering with everything on that right side. But the nurse handed me, uh, it was like a 30 minute surgery. Like it was not a very involved surgery at all. The nurse hands me a drain log. And so I'm holding the drain log and my, my surgeon like noticed it as, as I was getting ready to leave. She said, Oh, you're not going to need that. And I said, I think I'm just going to put it on the counter when I get home. And she started laughing because she's like, oh, he is going to be so upset if he thinks he has to empty more drains. Aww. I was like, I'm just going to put it on the counter and see what Charles says. Oh, yeah. My husband emptied the drains. He was so diligent about doing it, too. I almost think he enjoyed it because it was the only way he could take care of me. Right. Because it was it was just like a thing, a thing that he could do. And then, of course, I started doing it myself because he doesn't like that kind of thing. Yeah, um, no. <laughs> it's I, talk about not being glamorous. It's really not these things hanging from your body that you need to drain into a cup that you need to then measure and write down. It's really, it's really lovely. Yes, yes, my husband has has a word for that. I'll tell you when we're off air. <laughs> <laughs> hey. It's kind of funny and it's been a like a long running joke in our household. But yeah. It uh it gets a little gets a little entertaining in a way that other people from outside of our household might be like, Oh my god, that's so not funny. <laughs> and we're like, Yeah, it really is. It really is funny. You gotta laugh. You gotta laugh. You do. You do. So one of the things that you had mentioned as you were talking about your story was being kind of plunged into menopause and in the land of things that no one prepares you for, I think that's one of the big ones. Because in a lot of ways, I think doctors just know that this is going to happen. And in a lot of cases, I think they can't really prepare us for how that's going to go. But it's always interesting to me to see we think the diagnosis and treatment are the most, excuse me, the most impactful piece. And really, it's all these things that no one's preparing us for that kind of packs the bigger punch. Because we're not prepared for the mental challenges that being plunged into menopause could bring. And in your case, you were doing it on the heels of pregnancy hormones. So you go yes. from a lot of hormones to a lack of hormones. And oh my goodness, I mean, that is a serious shock to the system. Yeah, it is. And and I had a C-section too, so it was even worse, right? <laughs> and, uh, you know, it, it was like, here you are and there it's gone. but. You know, I, I kind of knew, I think I was, I was at ease, right? Because I had my child and he was healthy. And so I 
I was feeling, okay, well, I can do this now. And I was semi-prepared for what was going to happen, but not really. I don't, I don't think that you can truly understand it. And, and of course, you've got well-meaning people who have been through menopause, but have never been through this and certainly have not been 30, you know, five years old or 37 years old, rather going or 36, sorry, how old was I? 36. Um, who are going through something that most people don't at that age, right? Most people don't. And so to understand what does that do to you as a person in terms of your mental health, it's, it's more than just removing a body part. It's what, what effect that has on you. And because I had this crash and burn with the C-section and then, you know, people think, well, why, why you crazy person? Why would you choose two and a half months later to have this surgery to then remove your ovaries and your tubes, knowing that it was going to affect your hormones? Um, and the answer to that, and we talked about this a little bit off air was deductibles, right? Yeah. And so again, not a glamorous topic, but I had a calendar year for my insurance coverage, which started on July 1st and ended on June 30th. And I had been pregnant. I had a high risk pregnancy and I had exceeded my deductible. And so this surgery was going to cost me nothing. And the reason why I chose to do it had nothing to do with what was good for me, what was good for my body or what was good for my mental health and everything to do with fitting myself into the system so that I could afford it because yeah. it needed to be done. So it could cost me nothing or it could cost me thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars after I just had a baby that I was going to pay bills for. So I had to make that decision. Unfortunately, I don't think it was probably the wisest decision, but I do think what it did help me to do was recognize the fact that, that I probably wouldn't have, that I probably had some postpartum depression because, uh, you know, I was at a later maternal age and I think that it was easy, easier for me to accept help, um, in terms of, you know, just like a little bit of, you know, some medication and, and that I had for a long time just thought, I don't need that. I don't want to be that person. I can do this myself. I can help, but I would find myself having panic attacks for absolutely no reason at all. Or I would find myself, I had to go to the cardiologist because I was having heart palpitations. And I found out that the heart palpitations were because I had gone through this early menopause and did not have these hormones anymore. No one told me that. So I thought I was on the verge of having a heart attack. But in fact, it was totally normal to be told, oh, yeah, I see that those little blips, but that's totally normal. It doesn't feel normal and it makes you even more anxious. So it forced me to go through that process. But it was um, it wasn't something that I chose to do because I just thought, oh, well, this would be fun for me to do two and a half months later. It was it was very systematically chosen so that I didn't have to pay more money. Absolutely. And the cost of healthcare is so exorbitant that we do find ourselves making those decisions. You had commented on um, being in the transfusion room and feeling 
feeling feelings around that. Like, and I found myself having, I could completely relate to what you were saying because my chemo caused me to be anemic. And like my red count just every week, it was lower and lower and lower and lower. Everything else rebounded. But my red count just was in a downward spiral from the first treatment. And we have the same schedule, right? July 1st to June 30th and chemo. My bills that year were like close to $350,000. So when I was looking down the barrel of having my reconstruction, because I had expanders put in to to start because we didn't know what treatment I was going to need. So my reconstruction was happened later. I commented to my oncologist that I couldn't, if my red count didn't rebound, I wasn't going to be able to have my surgery. And what was the chance that my red count wasn't going to rebound by June? Here it was March. And my numbers were still like, not critically bad, but not normal. They were not in a range where they would approve me to have a surgery. And my oncologist just looked at me and said, well, we'll transfuse you. And I was like, what do you mean you'll transfuse me? Like, I'm an otherwise healthy walking around person. But mm-hmm. I really wasn't. Because I, my red count wasn't good enough to withstand a surgery, right? That was, I was not 100%. But I was like, I'm close enough to 100%. Like, I, why, who, who am I to have that done? And he was like, you're a person with an abnormal red count. <laughs> I was like, oh, maybe that's Yeah, and okay. I think that's, that's, that sounds like, you know, kind of like that whole scarcity lack thing where you're like, okay, but if I take this and I use it, who else won't get it that potentially needs it more than me? right? That whole selfless versus selfishness, um, like that I don't deserve to have this. There's someone else who's more deserving. Yeah. And I think that's so similar in similar types of when I hear people say, oh, I, I had this low stage diagnosis. So what I went through wasn't as hard. Yes, it was. It was. It was the same. It's hard. There's stuff. Like, it's all your journey is important. It matters. Like, what you've gone through matters. And I think often as women, we discount those things in a way that... We absolutely do. Yeah. In a way that we just don't even... We're not even aware of. And I thought that that was was interesting that we both had that that transfusion room experience of there's people here for for re- other reasons where our reasons were just as valid our doctors wouldn't have had us there if we didn't need to be there yeah oh i was the youngest person in the room by far and it just felt strange it felt very strange but then also getting to witness some of the amazing things, you know, people ringing the bell for their last chemo treatment and those types of things that you get to, 
you know, looking back on that, I got to kind of celebrate with them, even though I didn't know who those people were. It was all, I was always surrounded by someone else that I didn't know, but I felt almost a little out of sorts and a little lonely in there because it, it did. It was like, which one doesn't belong? And it was me. <laughs> um, when in fact I, I did, I did. And it did open me, open my eyes to the experience thinking later on how grateful I was that I did not have to have that same experience and got to make the choice to, to have the surgery and, you know, to, to make the choice to have this mastectomy done with, like I said before, it was made for me. Yeah. And I, I think that that is, I think that's an amazing opportunity. I have met quite a number of people, which seems odd. I've met quite a number of people who have had the BRCA gene actually a month before my diagnosis, weeks before my diagnosis. It wasn't even a month. I was out in Seattle and a friend had shared that she had had a bilateral mastectomy a couple of years prior and a full hysterectomy because she was BRCA positive and she had had, she'd been being monitored. Um, she had opted to do the six month monitoring. And when they found something, then they immediately, like she was prepared to take action. She had her plan. Um, but her, her choice was to wait until something happened. And it was fabulous because she was like, okay, you're thinking of having a bilateral. I'm just going to send you some photos of what mine looked like. (laughs) Send me some photos. So weird how we desensitize all of that too. I've sent many photos, not to like random strangers, by the way, but like you're texting them to the doctor's office or like, yeah, everything looks okay. Um, But that's funny. I mean, it's funny, but we don't think about it that way. But we totally, I mean, we have to take, we take suck all the emotion out of it. It becomes very black and white. There's no gray area. No, there's not at all. And it's so funny. I was in, um, when I was in lymphedema training and I've talked about this before, um, the teacher was like, I need a volunteer like days before she needed this volunteer. She's like, I'm going to need a volunteer that, um, where I can pull the drape down and expose the chest to show the procedure. And I was like, it's fine, I'll do it. And she was like, no, no, you can think about it. And I was like, they're fake. Like, (laughs) why do I care? They're fake, it's fine. And she's like, what is it with you? And she was a physical therapist who is a lymphedema specialist. And she's like, what is it with the breast cancer people? Like, I'm not even out of the room and they're changing. I was like, because everyone's looked at them. Like, it's just not a big deal anymore. Like, am I taking my shirt off in public? Absolutely not. But if there's a fellow breast cancer person and they need to get some direction on, you know, scar tissue massage tips, I'll be like, do you want, like, I can show you how to do it. I can show you on me how to do it. <laughs> it's not a big deal. Yeah. Cause it's just like, oh, it's just another body part. It's completely lost all sense of tabooness. Yeah. Everybody's seen it. It is. There's <laughs> yeah, you just gotta let it you just gotta let it go. It's just not a big deal anymore. 
I mean, I feel like at that point you're, you know, you're a warrior, right? You've gone through all of this stuff. It's just, you know, eh, whatever. Drop the drape. Exactly. Which then my husband hears me say that and he's like, what? <laughs> Not at a party, hon. Right. And I'm like, no, no, oh, no. <laughs> only for demonstrations. <laughs> it's it's a very interesting, it's a very interesting thing. But I also found it interesting her like process. And I know everybody has has different processes. Some people either know they have a family history and they choose to do go the route of getting tested. Some people choose not to get tested. In her case, it was really interesting because her her mom had had breast cancer, her aunt had had breast cancer, and I think her sister had had breast cancer. And this is crazy. They none of them had the gene. Oh my goodness. She got the gene from her dad's side of the family. And her dad's mom so this had to have been he was a very little boy like four or five years old and they owned a farm and we think that she probably had a bilateral like a radical mastectomy because they told him as a little boy that she was kicked by a cow and she didn't live very long after that but she we think Uh that it was actually breast cancer but as a little boy they didn't tell him and of course this was this was probably 80-ish years ago. So quite a long time ago. And but it turned out her dad had the gene. My goodness. So it wasn't on the side where all the cancer was showing up. She had gotten tested just because there was so much cancer on that side. One of her doctors said, Well, we can test, and she had the right background. So mm-hmm. The doctor said, we can do the test. And then it came back positive. And then the this was before they were commonly doing genetic testing, because it's much more common in the last five years. Um, unless there's a known, unless there's been a known history. And everyone else got tested and they were like, How how is this even possible? That's crazy. Yeah, I mean, and that's why it's so important to just just pay attention, you know, pay attention to the signs. And I mean, yes, the gene is is an important signal. Um, but I mean, you just even demonstrated through that story that it's not it's not the end all and be all, right? And and I mean, the reality of the situation is I had this surgery, but that doesn't mean I can't ever get breast cancer. Um, it means I significantly reduced my risk. And so, you know, knowing that and then the irony and that is, you know, but I could get some other kind of cancer, right? So we just have to be prepared and, and really, as with everything in life, just bring an awareness to ourselves and, and really know what feels good, what looks good. Family history is really important, but how do you feel? Like, what's your baseline? Yeah. Know what that is so that you know when you're not on. And if you can't pinpoint why, 
then don't wait. Don't make excuses. Just err on the side of caution and check it out. Absolutely. And really be persistent. Because a lot of times we don't feel right. Something feels off. And it's not immediately obvious what that thing is. And it can be easy to be dismissed or have someone say something is common for a reason that doesn't apply to you. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And that happens in this journey too, especially like in your case, you had the, did you have a partial hysterectomy? They did. I did. Yeah. So like having been put into medical menopause, all bets are off. Like, doctors are just now starting to say, like, yeah, we're not 100% sure. Like, you could be in perimenopause for the next 5, 10 years. Mm -hmm. We don't know. And that'll be okay where, you know, 10 years ago, that wouldn't have been considered to be okay. Like, there would have, they would have been seeking to do some other kind of intervention. And now they're like, you know, we just don't know. Like we did a thing mm-hmm. in your body. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, now that you just mentioned that, it made me just think of, you know, kind of one last thing is, you know, when I had that surgery done, when I had that partial hysterectomy done, it wasn't, okay, well now we did this and now you're all good. Everything's good. You don't have to worry about it. It was like, but when we do this, this affects or increases your risk of osteoporosis. Uh, and so we're going to have to be doing bone scans and, you're going to um, also be at a higher risk for heart disease. And I'm like, wow, so you have to weigh the risk. You know, do I get this done so I don't have this? Or do I do this done, which get this done, which increases my risk of this other thing? So there's lots to consider when you're making choices like this about about your body, right? Like, which is the lesser of two evils, essentially. Yeah, absolutely. My left side was affected. So when I was exploring the option of radiation, which was a recommendation, not a requirement, um, because it was left side, the radiation oncologist said, as a woman, you have a 50% risk of heart disease, just as a woman. Starting number out of the gate, 50-50. And how many women have cardiologists? Like every single woman I see in my fitness practice, I'm like, do you have a cardiologist? Because I see a lot of older people. Mm -hmm. I'm like, you should have a cardiologist. (laughs) Every female should have a cardiologist. Just, Just to be safe. Just to have that person who's watching you, who's telling you what to, what you should know, who's checking the things. Because I was like, really? 50%? That was not a number that I had heard. And if I had radiation, it would have increased my risk by, I think at that time, it was an additional 5%. Mm -hmm. I was like, "Hmm, why are women not referred out to cardiologists like more commonly? It would seem if every other person could potentially have heart disease, everyone should have a cardiologist. It would seem so. 
That would be the logical thing. But then we would all have to do it within our deductible time frame after we've expended <laughs> our deductible. Right? <laughs> it's a catch-22. It is indeed. Well, thank you so much for spending this time with me today. I really appreciate it. It's always it's always amazing to me how much sameness we find in our stories. And even when our stories are very different, there are so many similarities that pop up. And, and I think there's comfort in that for for all of us. So thank you so much for sharing your story well, today. Thank you for having me. It's really been my honor and pleasure to be able to talk to you and tell my story. Thank you so much, Paula, for sharing your story today. There's been this unexpected phenomenon that's happened for many of my guests. Some have shared these feelings at the end of our conversation as part of the podcast, and some have messaged me after to say they were surprised by the positive impact telling their story was having for them almost immediately after we left Zoom. I'm really grateful for all the stories that are shared here. And so often, even if our journeys are different, we also find sameness and sometimes solutions to challenges we weren't even clear that we were having. This year, I have a goal of interviewing 50 people and sharing those stories and those silver linings. If that might be you, come connect with me in my Facebook group, Surviving is Just the Beginning. You can connect with Paula and other past guests there as well. Or look for the coffee chat post in the show notes or in the group as another way for us to connect. Knowing there are others with similar experiences helps us know that we are not alone. That's our episode for this week. Thanks for listening and have a great week. Thank you.